Hey, how's it going, universe? Welcome to another episode of Zoobox Goes to the Movies. This week, we're going to be talking about the 2002 film, The 25th Hour. You can't see me being a father? No. Well, I can see you fathering children. I can see you raising it. I would raise my own chalupas. Well, we're definitely not having any kids together if you're going to be calling them chalupas. It's probably your mother. You have the worst timing. Montgomery broken in? I'm Agent Flood with the Drug Enforcement Administration. Directed by Spike Lee, written by David Benioff, based on a novel that he also wrote. He adapted his own novel of the same name, 25th Hour. It stars Edward Norton, Barry Pepper, Rosario Dawson, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Anna Paquin, Brian Cox, Tony Devon, Isaiah Whitlock, cameo by Patrice O'Neill, and others. The logline plot synopsis is, cornered by the DEA, convicted New York drug dealer Montgomery Brogan reevaluates his life in the 24 remaining hours before facing a seven-year jail term. We haven't talked about this at all. You know, this is our last no, night. it's not our last night. My last night. I wanna hold you, but my hands are tied. Years from now, you gather your family together, you tell them the whole story. Who you are, where you come from, and then you ask them if they know how lucky they are to be there. This will be the best night of my life. Best night of my life. And to help me do that, past and future guest Dan Prophet has returned. Cheers. It's kind of like a, a series. Last time we got together, we talked about Spike Lee's seminal film, Do the Right Thing. And uh, we had, uh, during that the very long podcast, uh, we talked about the 25th hour briefly, and we thought it would be a great follow-up to that conversation. So we wanted to get into it. So, Dan, 25th hour. What's your, what's your personal history? with this? Did you see this when it came out? Um, not directly when it came out. This was, uh, shown to me, um, someone told me that, uh, I reminded them of Ed Norton in the scene where he's cursing everyone out in the, uh, mirror. Fuck the Wall Street brokers. Self-styled masters of the universe. Michael Douglas, Gordon Gecko, wannabe motherfuckers figuring out new ways to rob hardworking people blind. <laughs> the mirror, yeah. And, uh, I was like, I decided that I needed to see what that was all about. Um, I watched the movie when I lived in Boston, I'd say probably 2012. I don't know. I can't, I can't remember the timeline very well, but um, I was immediately, uh, immediately struck with like the sort of uh, crime noir thing that it, it was going on. I didn't expect that from Spike Lee. Um, it was a much more mature movie than I had remembered from Spike Lee. Um, I mean, obviously, Do the Right Thing is is a, a fantastic movie, and uh, the other one that I love from Spike Lee is Bamboozled. But um, to see a movie like The Twenty Fifth Hour, um, I was kind of taken aback at the way that he was handling the subject matter with like um, a less heavy-handed approach than we had before. I think that's one of the reasons that people kind of don't pay as much attention to this movie is because it's very understated there's a lot going on but he's um letting it happen he's really not forcing it down your throat yeah and this was uh i think this is the first time there was a script that he did not write 
he had no hand in the script. I mean, beyond the guidance of a director and then Ed Norton as a producer had his input into his character and stuff like that. But David Benioff, who is became famous later in life as one of the showrunners of Game of Thrones. He's one of the guys behind the Game of Thrones show. Um, yeah, he adapted the script himself. And even when they when they started filming this, they started prepping it like it was before September 11th. And uh, they incorporated it into the movie. And then Benioff went back into his book and put the stuff from the movie back into into the book, into the novel. So if you were to buy it now, it more closely resembles uh, actually the movie, which I oh, thought wow. was interesting. But um, my personal history with I saw this actually back in like 2002 when it came out. I didn't know. You know, back then, I didn't know who the fuck really Spike Lee was, per se. It was just like the new Edward Norton movie, because Edward Norton was kind of a thing at the time, uh, back in the you know late 90s, early 2000s. Like, his star was on the rise. So I had enough of an awareness, because I was more into actors at the time, that like I wanted to see the new Edward Norton movie. And I was really too young, I think, to, to really grapple with like what was going on. I really like. I enjoyed the movie. I suppose just on a kind of a visceral, superficial level, but uh, and then I saw it again, like probably a decade later. It's been it had been like probably about ten years since I'd have actually sat down and like watched the Twenty Fifth Hour, and uh, my takeaway from it, like being an adult, uh, is probably my favorite Spike Lee movie. And I've been watching a lot of Spike Lee movies lately. Yeah. I think this one really holds up. Oh, yeah. Even it, even though it's like set specifically right after September 11th, it it has a timeless quality to it. Like you don't feel, doesn't feel like of an era. It just feels like it's like a timeless story, you know? Yeah, well, because he's not uh, he's not making the movie about September 11th. September 11th is a thing that has happened in the story that's playing as a background allegory to all mm -hmm. the things that are happening in these people's lives. This idea of a permanent change, uh, like an inescapable change from an event that you can't go back and, and, and correct. And um, they're never... E e even in the scene when uh, Jacob and Francis are talking to each other in front of Ground Zero... They're never like making a huge deal out of it. It's just part of their conversation. They're talking about how, uh, oh, don't you think the fumes will uh, get you? And Francis yeah. is like, oh, that man, I pay a lot for this apartment or whatever. Yeah. yeah New York Times says the air's bad down here. Oh, yeah? Well, fuck the Times. I read the Post. EPA says it's fine. Somebody's lying. <laughs> gonna move fuck that man as much good money as i pay for this place hell no tell you what bin laden could drop another one right next door i ain't moving and uh they're never going into some you know soliloquy about the firefighters or whatever no but, it's, it's it's a very soft touch but that stuff's in the part of the fabric because it's part of the city right, right like but there will be like you know quiet cuts to a picture of a dead firefighter in the bar that you know Montgomery's father owns real quick no you know not attention drawn mm -hmm. to it something if you're a quick uh, casual viewer you'll just pick up as part of the atmosphere of the movie but you know um, the the emotions about these things are coming through in the characters and how who they are now as a result of the past 
and as a result of what's to come in the future. And all of them are dealing with either one or several consequences of uh, something that's going to change them or has changed them forever. And so 9-11 is like playing in the background as a punctuation to all that. That, yeah. that happens to people individually and civilizations. Yeah, exactly. I think you hit the nail right on the head when you said it. it's just it's this irre- irrevocable change. Like you cannot go back from that event. Just like in all the characters in some way are dealing with a microcosm of that kind of reality. And it's and it ends up be, and the crazy thing about it was when they started filming there's actually shots that they, they started shooting this before it happened. So actually when during the rant scene when Edward Norton's looking in the mirror and he starts talking about his dad his dad's at the bar drinking the seltzer water, and uh, you see all the firefighters behind him. All of those firefighters died at nine eleven, like a oh, month wow. after, uh, like a month after they shot that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Like it was like it's like, yeah. It gave me chills when I read that. I was like, oh my god, because I, you know, I, the first time I watched it in preparation, I didn't know that, and then I did a bunch of research and watched it uh, again throughout the day today, and I was like, ooh, like it's like. You really feel the specter of it even more, and it's just something that's like happenstance. You know, it's kind of like it's a weird confluence of events that adds this extra layer to the movie that it doesn't need to be there to work, but it adds this this texture to it that is really makes it it puts it over the top. It makes it something it, really special. Yeah, it adds a really silent, stoic punctuation to this idea, like the opening credits where it's just the memorial lights that went up after the towers were knocked down um, that are just like beaming into the sky. And it has that like thunderous score that was done by Mr. Terrence Blanchard, whose name yes. I remember to write down. Um, the score of this movie is so chilling. And, it's subtle and, and subtle and beautiful and like yes. perfectly punctuates like certain, like these mel- moments of melancholy. And this is a guy who's worked with Spike ever since basically Jungle Fever in 1991. And he's done, I think, almost every Spike Lee movie up to this point. Uh, But yeah, like it really just like, and I think that probably that melancholy, I don't know if it would, it's interesting. I do think it would have been as melancholy without like September 11th happening. Absolutely not. I think that um, that plays into the entire theme here of, of things being changed um, and not being able to go, but like even the production of this film um, changed by the event of September 11th, so so much so that it is woven into the texture and fabric of the movie. Um, I think that it actually Spike Lee was clever enough well, to realize what, that he had a moment here. Well, that's what I mean about this maybe being Spike Lee's like <clears throat> finest moment. Yeah, like because like he had the werewolf because Spike Lee often as much as I like Spike Lee like you know he can be kind of clumsy kind of messy very very in your face very in your face very overt this really plays it very low key it's like very subtle Uh, there's nothing really shoved in your face about any anything any aspect of the movie Um, and it's it's probably his most nuanced work as a as just as a director because he wasn't exactly a director for hire but I think, like, I would like to see Spike Lee direct more movies that he didn't write. You know what I mean? Like, because I, I think if this, is, if this is an example of what he can accomplish, just being able to kind of look at a story completely objectively, just as, like, a storyteller. Like, how do I, how do, I like, do this and infuse my, some of myself in there? Because while it does 
have those things and it is the most like nuanced Spike Lee movie, it still feels like a Spike Lee movie. Like he still is be able to maintain his sense of like authorship over it. Yeah, and uh, I think that one of the things that makes Spike Lee's movies suffer sometimes is that he has um, uh, he approaches well, Puff Daddy's on my mind because we uh, might be doing a little Puff Daddy segment later on, um, but he approaches his films the way Puff Daddy approaches his music videos. Like Puff Daddy, uh, he, he used to talk about how he would uh, envision his shitty songs as he was recording them, he would envision the shitty music videos that went along with them. And I think that Spike Lee gets really into the way things are going to look and the way things are going to feel on screen. And um, he doesn't often pump the brakes on, on his writing. Sometimes yeah. he doesn't need to. Sometimes I think the writing suffers from it. But um, that's not for me to say. He's, he's the brilliant director, not me. But um, in this particular movie, he knows exactly all the notes to hit and all the parts to hit the brakes and, and all the parts to hit the accelerator. And, um, I think that's just comes from, I mean, he had been making films now for like, well, almost two decades at that point or a decade and a half, decade and a half. Right? About 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I think it probably helped that he had, like you said, he had somebody come in and somebody else had done all the writing and, and he, he could focus more on the aesthetic and the characters Mm -hmm. which is really his strength. Which is something like uh, teaming up with somebody like Ed Norton. Ed Norton famously is very involved in the projects that he works on. He was a not just an actor, he was a producer on this. Apparently he dumped all of his money that he made on Red Dragon. If anybody remembers uh, Brett Ratner's Red Dragon uh, from the early 2000s when they tried to relaunch the Hannibal Lecter thing, like try to make it an actual like franchise. Um, Edward Norton was the star of that. Uh, go watch Manhunter instead, everybody. Go watch Michael Mann's Manhunter, which also stars Brian Cox as Hannibal Lecter. Don't think you can persuade me with appeals to my intellectual vanity. I don't think I'll persuade you at all. You'll either do it or you won't. Besides, we have Dr. Bloom working on it, and he's the best. Do you have the file with you? Yes. Pictures? Yes. Let me have them, and I might consider it. Uh, my, you may disagree, but uh, that is my nominee for secret MVP in this movie. But we can talk about that later. Brian Cox, actually, yeah. no, I totally agree with you. <laughs> that was mine too. <laughs> Brian Cox or Isaiah, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. She, Mr. Brogan, I do believe you're fucked. She. <laughs> now that my question with that is didn't he do that same thing on like the wire he does it in everything okay so that's just part and parcel of but this was that this was no but this was before the wire oh okay all right so this is before he that it's like almost like became a meme before it was a meme but yeah but it was popularized because of the wire yeah actually well that that actor uh in particular he is so evil and beady eyed and 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 confident oh god what a terrible villain and uh like all like all things in this movie he you know he only shows up in what like two and a half scenes or something well two two major scenes yeah they they don't beat you over the head with this dude they just he's so potent when he's on screen that you remember yeah because it's 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 like slightly larger than life but it's also feels very real 
Like it feels like that's like the thing I and I like this about a lot of Spike Lee movies, you know, like there is a recognizable aspect of every single person in most of his movies. Like you know that guy. You've met somebody like that and you kind of project a little bit onto the characters, like and it personalizes it for you. Even somebody like that, you get that sense of like the smarmy fuck that knows he's in control. Like I've worked for people like that. I've worked right. for assholes like that. You know what I mean? Yes, I know exactly what you mean. Who would I say have- who would say shit like that to you? That would say be like, Oh shit, looks like you're working late, buddy. <laughs> Must be the patent, the whole thing about the couch. And like they make the big deal about hmm, man, this is a really comfortable looking couch, but it just is so lumpy. You know, this sofa's not very comfortable. Uh, maybe it's your posture. Your posture is very important. Now is this uh Astro convertible. It's very uncomfortable. It's kind of, kind of lumpy. You know, I just don't understand it. It looks like such a nice sofa. How much did you pay for this sofa, Miss Rivera? Maybe it's the padding. Booyah! Could be the padding. Yeah. Probably the padding. <laughs> Must be the pen. <laughs> that whole exchange is like uh, I, I had. Uh, <laughs> it's one of my favorite little scenes. I had this uh, promo planned for the last IZA album that was like a shot-for-shot recreation of that scene with the band members playing all the parts. Oh, and you pull out the, pull out your new album. Yeah, and then at the end, instead of pulling out the cocaine, they just pull out like stacks of the new album, and it, oh, I think dude. it was like Randy would be like, "She, yeah, holding up like three copies, she, yeah, yeah, hard and cut to black, IZA available now." I think I remember throwing like a soft pitch of that to Chris, and I think he was like, "I've never fucking seen that movie. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about." <laughs> well, that would have been that would have been amazing, honestly. That would that perfect. That's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So any any band out there that's putting out a new record or something, you can go ahead and put your stamp on that. It's yours. Yeah. For f- <laughs> but like, that, that, like there's there's like this movie has a lot of iconic moments for a movie that isn't really being so understated. I, I would right? say really not that well known or not as popular. Like yeah, it's crazy. It is crazy. Like I know critics really loved it. Actually, Roger Ebert was a big champion of this movie. He really loved this movie, and it was again ignored by the Academy. Um, didn't get nominated for anything. <laughs> the movies that <laughs> the movies that got nominated that year were like Chicago, the musical, the pianist, the pianist by Roman Polanski, and the Hours. All these movies that like nobody remembers. Polanski got the uh, nomination. Yeah, that's when Roman Polanski got a standing ovation by everybody in Hollywood. For winning Best Director, yeah, Meryl Streep up there, just sick bitch. Let me tell you, you know, if I, you know, I wish I could be as rich and powerful as them to afford as much foreskin facial cream, so that I could look that good at the Academy Awards. But anyway, yeah, fuck the Academy. Uh, they don't obviously know a good thing when they see her, or else they would have given Spike Lee a fucking award back in nineteen eighty nine. Another well, summer. Honestly, like it is one of those times where you're just like, maybe they are a bunch of racist old white people, <laughs> like, because like he's got such a prolific career in the '90s. I mean, because I've been going back and watching them all, like from 
from do the right thing to 25th hour it's like a fucking every movie is a home run every movie is great i mean you may like some more than others but like every single one is deserving Something tells me that uh, old Spike doesn't uh, rub elbows behind the scenes as good exactly. as, like, say, Quentin Tarantino or somebody like that. <laughs> well, that, but that's very true, though. He doesn't. And that's what actually wins good you awards. For good for you, Spike. Don't rub their fucking elbows. Not unless you're in France and you're doing the Palme d'Or or something like that. Then he's all about it. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it is, like you said, it's a kind of an under, underknown movie. Like, not a lot of people talk about the 25th hour. I even looked on YouTube, just in the interim between when we were going to do this before and now, uh, just looking for, like, oh, what do people think about the 25th hour? Like, I didn't really know what the, the cultural beat on it was. And there's, like, nothing. It's like a, YouTube is like a desert of 25th hour content. Yeah. Like, and I was kind of shocked, because I was like, there are so many things to dissect about this movie if you really wanted to you could go scene for scene there's always something like prolific happening something well, like you, know, you won't get as many clicks as if you ask if Mookie did the right thing that's true we should say uh, did Montgomery do the right thing no <laughs> no he didn't did James Brogan do the right thing you know actually I'm going to title this like did they get off on the exit <laughs> oh, and that's my—that's the other wonderful thing. Uh, the the my boneheaded ex who uh, introduced me to this movie also was uh, completely hung up on the ambiguity of the ending, and it always left a sour taste in my mouth because she was like uh, insistent that the ending was supposed to be ambiguous. Like, and I'm like, well, uh, it doesn't seem ambiguous to me. Oh, he goes um, to jail. But yeah, and and so like that's. That's like the boneheaded, uh, caved-in head, Wojak interpretation of the end of the movie. It's like, did he even go? Did he? Did he go to jail or did he go to the out west? And it's like, well, the point is, the point of this movie, the underlying theme is an inescapable change that you can't get away from. Exactly. And, and honestly, there, there are hints that give away that he does go to jail, but yeah. Well, I think like it's also, in my opinion, that it is the moment that makes Brian Cox the secret MVP. It is actually heartbreaking because that is a man's father trying to comfort his son. Yes. And tell his son that it's, I can fix this like he does when they're having dinner. I, uh, I talked to Sal. Oh, Dad, come on. Let's see if you can help with it. Dad, guy's been out of the picture for 20 years. He still knows people. Like he brings yeah. it up. He's like, oh, I'm going to talk to this guy. I know. You know, maybe we can work something out when he knows he can't, but he just wants to say it because he doesn't want to feel impotent and he doesn't want to feel like he can't help his son. And that whole relationship, you don't get a lot of it, but you just get enough to know like the sadness that was yes. there. Uh, when they lost his mother, he becomes an alcoholic. His father understands that. Like I fucked this up for you. This should never have happened. You could have been, if you wanted money, you could have done anything, anything you wanted. Doctor, lawyer. Don't lay that on That's me. all I'm saying. Don't lay that on me. I mean, when Sal and his crew were squeezing you for the payments, I didn't hear you wishing I was a law school student then. Not one one from you back then. Where'd you think that money was coming from? Donald Trump? That was a mistake. Well, let's just forget it then. There were lots of mistakes. 
You should have stopped drinking when your mother passed. Oh, please. Please don't do this. An 11-year-old boy with a dead mother and a drunk father. Mm -hmm. you know, I got no one to blame but myself. Oh, stop. Stop. And it is heartbreaking. I was, I was just thinking about it, Dan. Like, I was just like, it, the scene was on. And I was just like, and I was like, I had to walk over to the kitchen to do so. I started getting choked up. I was just like, because I started thinking about like the implications of doing that. Right. Like as a, like you know, I'm a, as a man, as a father, like being in that situation, and not only being in that situation, but knowing you are partly responsible for it. And that's like another theme. And this is something that Spike Lee does a lot. It's a lot about sometimes it is about this generational thing, this generational responsibility. Be there for your fucking kids. Be a dad. Like it's like that's a big part of do the right thing, and that should. And he he threads that here, and it was so beautiful and so heartbreaking. Like it really just broke my fucking heart. Give me the word, and I'll take a left turn. Left turn to where? Take the GW Bridge and go west. Get you stitched up somewhere and keep going. Find a nice little town. On the way, stop in Chicago for a Cubs game. You always told me you wanted to see Ridley Field, Dad. I'm saying it. If you want it, if that's what you want, I'll do it. Oh, I'd take your bar. My bar. Jesus, my bar. I can take my bar to hell and back. You think my bar is more important to me than you, my only child? Give me the word and we'll go. Honestly. And that's like the more I watch this movie, the more like depressing it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like because it, there's a finality to it that really... oh my god even just even just the, the friend dynamic even just with their friends and their friends trying to be strong for their gut their their buddy that's going away and they're and they're all kind of estranged and they're doing their own thing and and like and then all of them kind of in their own way coming clean at some point during the night like you know breaking down to him especially the scene between him and uh barry pepper when yes. they're overlooking the dance uh the dance floor is like heartbreaking i feel like that is like because i've had versions of that conversation in my life Ver not obviously not not to that degree but i've had versions of that conversation and it really it's so raw you'll be a 38 year old punked out ex-con with, with government issued dentures 38 is still young are you gonna get out you and me we're gonna start something up you know a fucking bar i mean we're two irish kids from brooklyn where the fuck would we be without a bar right how could we not have a bar? Come on, we have uh, free hot dogs on Monday night football. You know, we, get, we got an old jukebox in the corner. You know, green beer on St. Patty's Day, come on. Green beer, Frank, you've been working 15 years to get away from green beer. I'd hate this shit too, I'm just saying we got options, right? I appreciate the thought. I don't see it. Seven years, you're gonna be running your own show. I don't see you working with me. We've known each other since we were three. Have I ever broken a promise to you, huh? Have I ever once broken a promise to you? Have I ever said, I'm gonna be somewhere and not showing up? No, I'm gonna be there when you get out. You hear me? I'm gonna fucking be there. Like the whole movie is so raw, you know, just from frame one. It is uh, this, like this beautiful statement, this, this horrifically beautiful statement about consequence and life and the choices that you both, both that you make and that get made for you. And it's uh, very heavy. I apologize. I'm like fucking on a no. soapbox. but No, no, it, it is. And I think that it all is uh, comes together in, in a line. And when Barry Pepper, uh, when Francis is talking, by the way, this is Barry Pepper's finest performance as far as I'm concerned. By a fucking country <laughs> mile, dude. 
Yeah, yeah, big time. Um, when he's talking, when they're, you know, the backdrop is ground zero, and they're talking about um, when Monty's going to get out of jail, and, and Jacob, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is, is saying, oh, yeah, no, we're going to be there. We're going to go visit him, and then we're going to pick him up when, he's, when he gets out, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, Barry Pepper responds with the basically the thesis of the movie, which is like, do you think that we're just going to get a beer with him and like catch up and every you know we're going to talk about what happened this week and blah blah blah. After tonight, bye bye, Monty. What does that mean? Man, if he runs, he's gone. He ain't coming home. If he pulls the trigger, they close the casket. He's gone. They lock him away, he's gone. You'll never see him again. I'll see him again. You won't. No, I'll visit him oh, up there and I'll shit. see him when he Come gets on, out. Fuck with you. You, know, you know what, this is such horseshit. This is so much like you, Jake. You're not gonna what, see him like again. Like me? Yeah, it's, exactly. What's it, why, You'll what? never see him again. Well, you think you're gonna kick back with some beers? Reminisce? Old times, you're still gonna be friends? It's over after tonight, Jake. Wake the fuck up. That whole uh, that whole bit that he does much better than I can recite right there. Um, but it's a beautiful parallel to the scene that Barry Pepper has with uh, with with Montgomery, with Ed Norton, uh, like that we were just talking about, because he falls victim to the delusion that Philip Seymour Hoffman is trying to hold on to this hope, and he also, when he is confronted with his friend, he also has that you earnestly feel that, like you want that, you want right. to be there. You know? But in his most truthful moment there with Jacob. Yeah, because he can he be says, truthful you know, with Jacob. Yeah. Basically, he says, you know, this is an irreversible thing. Like, Bonnie's going to jail, and the person that we know is no longer going to be there when he gets out. Yeah. The Bonnie that gets out of jail is going to be a completely different person. And he's probably going to be more like the Russian dude who went to jail four times since I was 14 years old. The first time I went to prison... I was 14 years old, skinny little boy, very afraid. By the time I came out, I had a beard, I was a grown man. I went back to my hometown, I found my mother, I kissed her, and she screamed. She didn't recognize me. Survive, which was another chilling moment in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> But like a, but Barry Pepper even goes on to to even further on into that because he's like it's not just the end of him it's the end of us right like this is probably the last time we're really gonna spend time together right because because um, we're we're not actually connected as friends anymore like this is like a bonding agent and that bonding agent is now gone exactly because um, now Jacob and um, Francis live in completely different worlds. Even though they have and great chemistry, they don't like, they have they great don't chemistry. like each other anymore. They've grown to they've grown to not like each other anymore. And the glue that holds them together when the, the very few times that they do see each other is Monty. Yeah. And and Monty tends to be uh, this driving force in all these people's lives, um, like a, a a person who changes them their lives for the better. And he represents the sort of antithesis of the thesis of the movie, which is that there are forces in the world that can, you know, they can irre irrever irrevocably change people's lives for the better. 
like when he saves Doyle, like when he basically puts, you know, starts dating Natural and putting her on a better path. Mm-hmm. You know, when there, there's there's things about Monty that show that he has a caring nature about him. He wants to take care of the people around him, and that his circumstances are more about why he gets into uh, what he gets into. Um, but you know. <laughs> I think that uh, he he kind of shows that he, he kind of becomes this catalyst for for the uh, good change in people's lives. But the way he does it is is in such a negative way that uh, he sort of has to eat that karma by taking on that irreversible change himself by going to jail. Yeah. Um, but you know, Monty, like when I say that he takes care of the people around him, like he ends up doing it in very destructive ways. For example, his buddy who comes and sees him at the beginning of the movie. I'm uh, I'm hungry. I woke up an hour ago. I was hungry. Nothing I can do about that. Go up to 110th Street. 110th Street? Come on, man. I can't go up there. I mean, well, get that away. <laughs> I um, I'm not, I'm not looking for a mercy pop or anything, you know. Like this morning, right? I was shaving and I cut myself like, look, look, like four times, man. Come on, Monty, give me a break, man. I, I can't go up to Harlem. Look at me. The, the yo's, they, they, they'll eat me alive up there, man. I'm out of business, Simon. Hey, take your Jones somewhere else. Leave me alone. Are you afraid that I'm, that I'm not going to knock you out? I mean, you know who I am. It's me. You're not listening Simon. to me. I got touched, okay? I'm over. Game over. Five years I've been coming to you, man. Five years. Get out of here. Get the fuck out of here. And it's very out of place that this random junkie is coming to see Monty, this sort of mid-level dealer who's pushing keys and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I thought this in this viewing, like it's really out of place that he would come and see him there. But then I was reminded later in the movie, you see that same guy at the park a few years later when he's still in a business suit before he's become a junkie. Mm-hmm. And Monty is dealing to him as just like, you know, I need some coke so I can go out with Patrick Bateman and everybody on the weekend and <laughs> yeah. try to keep up with the Kardashians or whatever. What that says is that in the four or five years in between those two moments, even though Monty grew as a big dealer, he kept dealing the little nickel and dime bags to this little guy to make sure that he didn't have to go up to 110th Street and get it from the yo's, as he puts it. Yeah. So it's like Monty. He, he he When I say he takes care of people, I'm you know he doesn't always do it in the most healthy way. Yeah, because he looks at that as a mercy, but really he also is not. He's it's a reminder of what he actually does. Yes. And and, and the misery that that this little, you know, as much good as he does for his dad and for Natural he's doing it off of the straight up misery of other people as Francis says and points out, you know, Hey, Monty fucking deserves to go to jail. There's a lot of people out there whose lives are ruined or maybe ended because of what Monty does. And, um, he's not wrong. No, he's not. He's not. That's the thing. Like, that's the, that's one of the great things about like, uh, casting, I guess, Edward Norton, because there's this innate trust as an audience that you have with him, and you kind of like him a little bit immediately. 
and it um, it helps to kind of underline this this notion of like him being this magnanimous personality, and it it's because it can act as kind of a reveal in a sense of the story. It's just like well, he's actually kind of he's also kind of a bad dude in some way. It's like it's like a. I guess so what we were kind of talking before we started recording, we were talking about Breaking Bad. We were talking about Heisenberg, uh, that character. That's kind of a similar thing. You 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 uh, you hire somebody like Brian Cranston, the dad from Malcolm in the Middle, to engender something in you that's positive. And then you realize as you're watching that show that you like him still, but he's a real evil fucker. Yeah, he's not a good dude anymore, right? But you still like him, and I think there's a little taste of that, and I think that's what the junkie is kind of there to do, is yeah. kind of at, up front be like, "Yo, he's he's a drug dealer," <laughs> like he's he preys on the weakness of desperate people, and uh, and then when it's not convenient for him anymore, it's not like he was trying to be like help that guy out. He was just like, "Get the fuck out of here, sorry, buddy, I'm yeah. done, I'm done." And uh, they, you know, those those scenes are juxtaposed with him saving Doyle. Yeah. So the movie's always going back and forth between setting Monty up to be, you know, the coat well, dealer, the heart of gold. It's showing you the complicated. People are not a monolith, right? People are not one thing. They're not like their job. They're not their friendships. They're not their their whatever their charitable sensibilities. People are very complicated. Monty's a very complicated dude. Right. And, and you get and you get to see little pieces of his personality as the night goes on, you know? Yeah. And, you know, character is really one of the things that Spike Lee does best. And you know, Monty is is a very complicated character. That's why it's a great movie. Uh, because all this character unraveling in front of you it's not done with uh, big exposition dumps or stuff. There's just a but like the movie is just conversation after conversation. Mm-hmm. Usually, people like sitting that. at tables. What's that? I said it's a lot like Glengarry Glenn Ross. Yes, yes, yeah, so it's a lot of people like sitting at tables, talking, having intense conversations with each and, other. And, and and one of the most egregious scenes of unfinished steak that I've ever seen when Monty sits down with his father and like eats like two, two pieces of steak and drinks like a sip of beer and then gets up, you know, I eternally want to reach through the screen and, and eat those mashed potatoes. You, you're wasting it, Monty. Your father paid for those mashed potatoes. Exactly. I actually, you know, I'm not even joking. I noticed that when I watched it the first time, I was like, Oh, you didn't even need a steak, <laughs> which is, <laughs> I guess that's like, a, is that like a, is that like dad mode? You're just like, there's food being wasted. I guess I have to eat it. Uh, uh, no, because I, I noticed that way before I was a dad. I, was, I think that's just okay. like fat kid mode. Like, hey, yeah, what, well, fair enough. Food right there. Can I eat? Wait, are you like, giving me permission to eat that? Ed, Edward, yeah. can I eat steak? Hey, hey, Monty, do you cope with depression by stuffing your face with lots of food? Oh, you don't. Oh, well, you I don't. do. Do you mind? There's <laughs> not every one. And put this back on the grill. It's too rare. <laughs> um oh what about what did you think of philip seymour hoffman philip seymour hoffman is like this is back in the time of his career where he would do great work thanklessly 
He just he's so good you don't even notice how good he is. Yeah. And I think that he uh man, he he just plays the perfect sex pest, doesn't he? <laughs> it's like was well, but you know, cuz I yeah, yeah, I totally like <laughs> And then Anna Paquin plays the perfect, especially for people our age that were like getting out of high school at that time. She's the manic pixie dream girl with the henna tattoo and the the belly button piercing. That is very much our generation's like yeah. Yeah. crazy artsy chick, yeah. you know. Yeah. Good. And and totally knows how to play all the cards. I mean, this girl, all the all the men around her are so stupid. Well, even and, when she gets let into the club, like when she's trying to get into the club initially, she's with three other dudes. Alinsky. Mr. Alinsky. Oh my God, what are you doing here? I I didn't know that you ever left the school. I thought that you had like like a bed down in the boiler room or something. Yeah, they're all sipping. Yeah, she's not even there with like her friends or anything. She's like the ultimate opportunist, and we've all known that girl. Come on, we all know. Uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we'll let a few of them. Let's go. You're looking at the dog, right? You again? Yeah. Isn't it past your bedtime? Oh no, I'm with Jake. We're we're lovers. <laughs> lovers? She's kidding. Really? Well, I mean, come on in. There's plenty of room for lovers. Well, I'm here with three friends. Can can they come too? Girls? No. Mary. Please, out of your mind. You can't take a bunch of guys in. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's it's a it's a old female archetype. Uh, old you know, old Marty Robbins wrote about Felina from El Paso. You know, yeah. Um, and uh, she knew how to treat all the men. She knows how to treat them and leave them. And <laughs> this dude is just like ripe for the picking, and it's almost like fate. Like uh, you know, again stars stars colliding and there's nothing you can do about it she just happened to be at that club that he happened to be getting dragged to he would have never been there yeah he doesn't even night. he doesn't even drink and he says that if he's, he's like i don't like i don't even, i don't want to drink i don't want to drink anymore yeah Barry pepper's like fucking no hit him we're drinking <laughs> I, okay i, I want to pause the conversation and just say that i want to go out for a night on the town with francis and xavier slattery I happen to be blessed with a very big dick. Oh, I just want to go out one night. I just want to go out one night with him. It would be a blast, and you know it would. That's but like me going out with Big Paul. That's what that yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I I'm closer to Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, <laughs> not not into teenage girls, but yeah. <laughs> now, dude, the whole. I mean, I hate to say it. But like this, the 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 sexual tension built between those two characters is so, like effective. you want to call it well done. Yeah, effective is the way. Yeah, you don't want to say well done. Effective is the word because it is so creepy. Their relationship, her manipulating him and him being so uncomfortable, but not being able to do anything about it because he's this weird beta male. Well, because he's a guy who probably hasn't had sex in like four years. Yes. Like he's he's like somebody's treating him like they're kind of coming on to him, but not because she knows how to ride the line. What did your mother say when you, when you got that? When I got what? Uh. Yeah. She said, "Um, where did you get the money for that?" Oh, and. And what did I say? Or where did I get the money? 
Well, what did you say? I said he likes me. Oh. Does he? No. Why do you care so much? Just curious. And, uh... And it is a joy to watch Philip Seymour Hoffman squirm. <laughs> yes, and all the little games she plays, like when he says something, and and she's like, "What?" and he like has to say it again. And... That's what I love about you, Lindsay. Why? Why? Huh? What's what you love about me? She just, she just, she knows how to make him look like even more of a fool than he's already making himself look. Yeah. And just, he's digging himself a hole, digging himself a hole. And they have all those wonderful shots with those two characters when he does that, uh, like the double dolly shot where they're just like floating through the club. Again, both of them going through this state of like irreversible change. Like I, fuck it. I made out with my teacher. Fuck it. I made out with my student. My, everything's on the line now. Everybody saw it. Every, this is shit, you know? Well, like it is, it is the, it's an amazing moment. Like when they're in the, they're in the bathroom or something. And when he actually kisses her, he gets the yeah. gumption. Cause he's so drunk. He gets the gumption. He's like going upstairs. Cause he thinks then maybe in his mind that she's kind of beckoning him up, up there and they go in there and they have that moment. He just kisses her. And then, the seconds after that, where he's just like, realizes what he did. And he's like, and this is what we were talking about. That's his moment of like, I can't undo that. I, this is, this is it for me. I can't undo that. You know? And it's uh it is uncomfortable, but it's also like a great moment in the movie. It's it's indefensible, but back in two thousand two, listen, people, things were different. Okay, we also saw our the hero of our film skeezing on a high school girl too while he's selling drugs in the park. You know, hey, she was eighteen when he was selling drugs in those parks that she was in. That's what I say. Yeah, but. Uh... It, it, it like yeah effective is is the word because it's so skeezy and it makes you feel so gross watching it and both of these actors are just like it's like it's weird going it's, 110 miles per hour it's it's weird because it's like it's skeezy and uncomfortable but it's also in a weird way like you understand it like you get it like not in a way that like you would actually do anything about it but like you understand this this person's dilemma or like this the place that he's in in my opinion i don't know maybe yeah, well, yeah, in that state of primal emotion all of us have been there in that like teenage hormonal rage. And, that's, and that's where he at that's where he is like socially that's where he still is developmentally yeah yeah so he so even though he is her teacher he's basically acting like one of the awkward dudes that's that was trying to get into the club with her and you know, he wouldn't have gotten into the club unless he was there with Monty anyway. So it's actually he's, it's he's one of those guys. It's it's probably the most on the nose moments in the movie. Especially when they, they introduce Philip Seymour Hoffman and Anna Paquin when they're in the class and she's reading from the book and you just see him like squirming in his seat the whole time. <laughs> and, yeah, and she comes after class to get her grade checked on and he's like 
He's trying to be a good teacher. He's trying to actually be a good teacher. He's trying to be a good teacher. He's trying. He's trying and failing to conceal his boner is what he's doing. <laughs> he's got like his leg crossed awkwardly away from her. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, uh, tell me, uh, tell me what you wanted to do about but technology. But that he's was like the those Quentin Tarantino and from Dust Till Dawn moments where yeah. he thinks she's. Oh saying yeah, I could. I could totally do that for you. I could totally do that for you. Richie. Could you do me a favor and eat my pussy for me, please? Uh, sure. Hey, <laughs> hey, Richie, could you come over here and fuck eat my pussy? Oh yeah, if you yeah, want me to. That's basically what's going through Philip Seymour Hoffman's head that entire. Well, he time. is, but Philip Seymour Hoffman is so good because he seeds in all this physical acting, this physic, this the physicality of his character, yes. and he's all punched up and tense. Yeah, you like Philip Seymour Hoffman, R.I.P. Uh, fucking amazing actor, and it's easy to. He's so good that you just don't even like recognize it most of the time. Like he's that good. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen The Master. No. Oh my god. Oh, you gotta see The Master, Dan. He's really Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman going head to head. Basically, a, a a story about like Scientology. Well, basically, the guy from The Joker. Yeah. Oh, the Joker guy. Oh, yeah. I love that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joker. Dude, that guy was crazy, guy. Like, did you see him on the stairs? Holy shit. <laughs> no, but it, it's a, it's a, it's one of his last performances. Also, one of his best performances is the Master. You seem to know the answers to your questions. Why do you ask? I'm sorry, you're unwilling to defend your beliefs in any kind of rational. Oh, if if you if you if, if you already know the answers to your questions, then why ask? Pig fuck. Um, and I would completely recommend that someday. Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, he's so, he's so fucking good. Who, another person who's also really great, who could be a contender for secret MVP is Rosario Dawson. Yes. I, I, yes. And, and she did look fantastic in that silver dress, but to this day, I still prefer her and Josie and the Pussycats. For oh, me. hey, listen. That's a great camp. That's a camp classic, as they call it. You know, it is. It is. It really is. It's because it's what Spice Girl or Spice World wanted to be. That's what. Yeah, I, if that's Spice it. Girls had any fucking integrity whatsoever, it would have been uh, something like Josie and the Pussycats. But uh, I just did. I just say that Josie and the Pussycats had integrity. Yeah. It was on scale relative to Spice World, so it, we're we're good. Yeah. But um, yeah, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Trying to suck Marky Mark's dick. Um, <laughs> wrong movie. Yeah, wrong movie. Wrong movie. Oh, this is a fucking idiot. Fucking idiot. <laughs> yes, that's that. That's. I was hoping I was thinking of the right scene. Yeah. Oh, fucking idiot. Oh, fucking idiot. Yeah, Boogie Nights, baby. That's another Paul Thomas Anderson movie. The guy who directed The Master. So. But yeah, man. Uh, Barry Pepper and his uh, that his his whole like that character's whole world is something that is kind of abhorrent, and you know in a way he's just he's causing just as much misery mm -hmm. as Monty is, but he's doing it in a legal way. And, when you, you see know, how you see, and, and you see how reckless he is in his basically his introductory scene. So I'm telling you, you got a theory. Look at this. Check oh, this good, you've got a theory. Look, Frank, fuck you and your theory. Oh, You're in awfully deep nice. here, Frank. You've got $60 million of defense money. 
Where he's supposed to like sell something because it looks like the wind is going to change with the stock or whatever he's doing, and uh, and he doesn't. He goes against everybody. And it's supposed you could you could read it as like a heroic moment, but it's really not. It's a really like irresponsible moment, where he's such a hot dog. He just got it all figured out, and he's gonna fucking just ride that wave, dude. Like with yeah. other people's money. Like. Yeah. The uh, the uh, the dumb fucking airbag, who introduced me to this movie, who also introduced me to critical race legal theory, because she's a dumb fucking airbag, um, who claimed to be uh, you know a uh, socialist and a uh, champion for the people after viewing that scene turned to me and said doesn't that just make you want to work on Wall Street? <laughs> and uh, I said no no, no. it doesn't that, makes, that, that scene makes me want to like have a couple of beers and go to bed because I don't want to even be because a, that's a, who controls like, our yeah, that's, that's who controls our financial future in our country is, hot, is Barry fucking Pepper in the 25th hour Coming in here, he's not even shaved. He's drinking his red bullshit. Okay, that's that's that 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 little interaction. I will say that that scene is full of so many little zingers. When he, when he's talking to his boss, and says, "Oh, hundred fucking million. He's doing like that whole big thing. Yeah, yeah. And then Barry Pepper says to the kid, like, one of my favorite lines in any oh, movie when he I, talks about the shirt. You know, you wear a striped shirt with a striped tie. You know that, right? Yeah, I do it for the ladies. Like. Oh, do the ladies ever tell you that you look like a fucking optical illusion? Yeah? Go away. That whole number is like one of the best. It's 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 one of those movie lines that you could never like pull off in real life. No. But the singer yeah. works there on screen. And yeah, everything in that scene is like cool and oh, it's so reactionary. Oh, God, the markets are going. Yeah, but when, you, but when you actually pay attention to it, you're like, this is fucking awful. It's terrible. Well, this is actually, it's actually, it, that scene is like a microcosm of Scorsese's uh, the, uh, the Wolf of Wall Street. Tell a stock at $10,000, my commission is 5000 bucks. If you sell $10,000 worth of this stock, I will personally give you a blowjob for free. <laughs> and I hope it happens. <laughs> like, yeah. That's what that, like, it looks like, oh my God, they're having so much fun, everything's crazy, drugs, women, stocks, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> What they're talking about is the unemployment numbers. Yes. They are making bets on how many people have jobs. Yeah. They're speculating on that, and they're making fuck tons of money on the whether or not the number goes a certain way. It is so fucking intangible and not real. To well, you know, I, I, Barry I, Pepper I, wins because the number goes goes what goes down. Yes, I think yeah. the number goes down, and he, but that's just the thing. Is like he is he's done something with like a hundred million dollars, and then the unemployment number goes down, so the hundred million dollars, like none of this shit makes any sense or is real. It is the Wall Street Illuvatar, as we talked about, one thousand RPM. Yeah, like it's it's alchemy. It's bullshit. They they make up a bunch of like math, and then like yeah. no, like this, like money is supposed to be a store of value. But it's not anymore. It's just like a number that you multiply. No, it's like they got together with the Parker brothers and made a game, and they said, this is just how we do it. You play this game. 
<laughs> yeah, and then money, and then money comes at us. So it's you know, quick, hate to uh, bust the balls of the uh, cryptocurrency kids out there, but it's the same thing. It's like the money's coming from nowhere, and eventually, eventually, that has to come to some kind of head in reality. Yeah, like the, like the value has to be actually represented in reality somehow. Yes, and, and you know, Jacob is right. Francis doesn't know how the world works outside of his office. He's got these stupid little his, his you know, game. pickup artists games that he talks about. He acts like he's Trex. Hey, I'm Robbie. Oh, what? Oh, oh shit, yo! I expected you to be normal size, Robbie. What the hell, man? You're micro machines. Except he doesn't have a cod piece or like eye makeup. He just like is the Wall Street dude version. I love. I love like what what puts him like on what in the sixty second percentile. He's like, well, I was blessed with a big penis. Yeah, I, I have. I have. It's just had genetics, that. dude. It's just genetics. I'm sorry, like. And he's eating his rice literally like my toddler he, eats rice. Dude, that was my favorite part when Philip Seymour Hoffman was like, you eat like a fucking animal, like a child. What are you talking yes. about? Well, is there table manners an issue? Yeah, that silver thing to the left of your plate, that's called a fork. And when people eat rice, they use chopsticks or a fork. And yeah, grown people don't eat fried rice with their bare hands. <laughs> you don't know how to behave. You bust my balls in the way I eat? You spend the whole week figuring out how to defraud foreign governments, whatever you do, and then you, you get out of there and you go out to the strange world outside your office called reality, and you don't know how to behave. You can't even take you out to a restaurant. Like, <laughs> but they're, they're both right about each other, you know? They are, exactly. Francis yeah. is a uh, uh, narcissistic Wall Street hog, and, you know, Jacob is a rich Jewish kid from the Upper East Side who feels guilty about everything. Mm-hmm. And they both have no fucking clue what actual reality is for regular people. Exactly. Yeah. That's why they have such a hard time connecting with Montgomery on a real level. Right. Like, it's, it's all abstract. His lifestyle. That's why they're like, you know, when Barry Pepper, uh, I keep saying his real name. <laughs> when, um, when, when Francis is like, like, when he's talking about his car, he's like, how do you think, how do you think he got that? We all fucking knew. We all knew. You know, yeah. we, just, we didn't say anything. We didn't care. Because we didn't understand it. We don't get it. We're just like, oh, whatever, he's doing his thing. They're not actually good friends when you really start to think about it. <laughs> They're only in the 25th hour. They've become kind of maybe the friends Monty needed before. Yeah, I mean, you can see at this point in their friendship, uh, they've all sort of, you know, they were, they were tight as a group in high school and now they've all flowered into their own lives and adulthood and they keep in touch in a, in a almost a superficial way. But, um, well, cause there's an, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Jacob has a line where he's just like, I don't even know why he invited me. And that's more than just like his, his, uh, insecurity. I think it's probably, it might've been a while because he surprises him at school. Like, it, yeah. It might. I think it might have been a while since they actually all hung out. Like it's probably been a few years, right? And so, but like, but Montgomery's taking inventory of his life. Like he goes back to where he went to high school. He goes to look at his his basketball trophy. He finds out 
that his the record that he set got broken. Look what a little punk I was. In the middle with the ball. I guess you weren't the center. No. no. I started though. Freshman year, I was on the varsity point guard. Yeah? Well, still hold all time assist record. Mm, no, Marvin Ray broke the record last year. He did not. He did too. Are you sure? I'm positive I coached the girls team. Yes. Like, it's all part of that. It's all him, like, kind of trying to understand himself in a weird way. So that's why he pulls his friends from the past because he's trying to recapture that, what that feeling again for one last time. Like, I just want to be who I was one more time. Right. Because, he, because like, like, like Francis says, he's not going to be the same dude when he comes out. That dude is gone after tonight. It's over. And I think, you know, and Montgomery understands that on, in some sort of, like, primal, innate level. Like, he just understands that about what is going to happen to him. Um, the, one of the things I did actually hear, I listened to, like, this little 20-minute conversation, these two uh, <laughs> hoity-toity guys talking about 25th Hour, and they were so fixated on, they keep bringing up uh, that he's going to be raped in prison. Why, why the obsession with that? I was like, really, fellas? <laughs> like, like if you were face, if you were staring that down, uh, the reality of that being like a squ- a skinny white dude going to a place where people do fucking hard time. Uh, I could send those guys some YouTube videos. Uh, there's plenty of people. Like, you know, you ever listen to like ex-cons talk about prison? Yes, I, I believe they call it gay for the stay. Oh, but they no, uh, there's. There was, a, I was kind of doing it on nightcap at one point, but I was like, "Ah, oh, this might be too much." No, uh, <laughs> please. It was a guy that was just talking about like uh, listening to pe- new guys get raped and hearing their assholes ripped. Bro, ain't want to listen. He don't think it could happen to him. Man, you don't know about these booty warrior niggas, man. Fast always skin. We out in the day room. The old head. As as homie to move in the cell with him. Now me, and I can't remember who else. I think my big homie. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, we go to him like, bro, listen. Feeling scared, bro. Man, look, it's a lot of shit you could do, man. But this ain't it. Long story short, he was so scared and locked up, and you know, just frozen, that he moved in the cell with dude. Now. If anybody been to the penitentiary, y'all know when them, when, them, when they hit them gates, we in a medium three, so you know that thing get locked down. When they hit them, when they hit them doors, you know, some people got TV, some people don't, but it's pretty much quiet on the tear. If you go to your door, you pretty much gonna hear anything that's going on. If you stand at your door at the opening and just listen, a fast or skinny man, you can hear. When, when, the, when, the, when the actual rape took place, you know, you can hear, and pardon me for the, um, for the um, vulgarity, but you can actually hear homie asshole rip, right? And I'ma just tell you like, I seen a lot of shit, I have been through a lot of shit. That was one of the worst things I ever, seen bro not even seen but heard just been around bro that was that was so 
That was that was that was um heartbreaking. That was some heartbreaking shit. Like that shit. It's not it's not like a fear. It's like it's not fear. Cause at that point I wasn't worried. I wasn't I wasn't too much worried. I mean I was I was scared deep down. You know, I'm, I'm a little I'm a little I'm a kid for real, man. Around all these, you know, big big ass, you know, strong thirty year olds, you know, I'm a little kid for real, you know. But I just had a disgust, man, for people that I never had before. Because they were being raped so violently. He's like, that'll change your life. You're not the same. You're not the same even just hearing it. Yeah. So, so like, I guess I maybe I have all that stuff loaded in my brain from years of just, like, you know, listening to people talk about that stuff for some reason. But, like, uh, you know... When people like were like when those guys were like dismissing that as like a very real legitimate fear, like he literally has Francis beat the fuck out of him so it doesn't happen. I need you to make me ugly. I can't go in there looking like this. I already told you. It's all about the first day. If they get one look at me looking like this, I'll be finished. Come on, this is you said anything. You just said you'd do anything. This is what I need. What are you thinking? I'm gonna give you a black eye. Nobody's gonna I mess with you. a lot more than a black eye, pal. You fucking help me out here? I need you to really fuck me up. Do it, you fucking pussy! Do it! Right. Or to try to stave it off. And they're like, oh, that's some weird homophobic stuff. I was like, you guys are so fucking privileged, dare I say. If you think that's out of touch. Trying to shoehorn some uh, social commentary in there or whatever. Yeah. Imagine, imagine the idea that you're going to do hard time in a prison and you're concerned about being raped and somebody's saying, well, that's a little homophobic, buddy. Really? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the the multitude of things that Monty is going to have to do and see in jail is going to change him forever. And, and I think that normal people can't... Normal people are so uh, adrift from <laughs> actual traumatic experiences that yeah. uh, they, they, they can't understand it. You know, like, they, these people... I used to see it in Santa Fe all the time uh, because the laws were more... Uh, lacks there, you know, people having like their stress pets coming to the grocery store with them because they can't yeah. like go public without their poodle or whatever. Yeah. Um, and there are places in this world where terrible, unimaginable things happen to people and they survive them and have yeah. to deal with the memory and the feeling and, and the smell and, 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 and going back to that moment when a random sound happens or whatever. Yes, yeah, exactly. And, uh, it's just, you know... Well, I that's what, like... Him. No, uh, yeah, but that's what makes that, that scene when he's talking to Uncle Nikolai when he gets brought into the club and he's got the tattoo that says survive. Like, you, I just, like, you start thinking about what is... Like, oh, shit. Like, he's basically... He just says, you just do what you gotta do. Just fucking live through it. Just live through it. Do what you gotta do and live through it. Right. Like, it's a very, like, dark moment. I was 14 when I first went. The official. I tattooed survive on my hand. 
the night before I went away to prison. And I did. We do what we have to do to survive. <laughs> you know, even and, beyond what happens after that, when they, when you, they, you finally find out who, who, uh, who outed Monty or who, who touched Monty, being his buddy, football player Tony Siragusa. Great, great moment. Uh, that dude pulls off that moment. He makes you feel a like Smeagol esque sort of pity. Yeah. For him in that moment. He's so pathetic and such a fucking cowardly piece of shit. I have no choice! I have no choice, Mark! Why? Please! Why? Why? I have no choice. I told me to trust this man. I trusted this man. Now I'm gone seven. Clean up your own fucking mess. You, you kind of don't, you don't really want to see Monty shoot him. Well, you don't want to see Monty stoop to that level, but also he, he's just so and that, that miserable. And, and, and they have the, the foresight to make you kind of like him. Yeah. Before that. Like, he's a funny dude. <laughs> when he's talking to the girl who's, who's walking past Monty's apartment. Mmm, very nice, very nice. Hello, beautiful lady. Beautiful baby. You look like Holly Berry. They tell you this? Come back. I make you half black, half Russian, maybe. He's like, anybody tell you you look like Halle Berry? I give you half Russian, half, half black, black baby. baby. Yeah. <laughs> so he's like, and that's what that this the movie's really great at subverting your emotions. It's not really your expectations because you don't know how the story's going to play out, and it plays out very realistically and organically. But it subverts your emotions, like your how you feel about all these people at one point or another. Like you're you're meant to question them a little bit. Like what are they doing? Like Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is probably the most overt example. Because of like the idea of like you know, hitting on a teenager or being attracted to a teenager, uh, Barry Pepper the same way. Even even uh, Natural herself, like you you don't question her. I like I don't know. Did when you ever watch this? Did you ever think that she might have been the one? Um, no, because I think that that would have been too easy of a path for Spike Lee to take. Oh, it would be cheap, I yeah. just kind of know him better as a filmmaker. Like, that would have not... He's obviously got something better up his sleeve than that, because that's the... the Naturel is the distraction. Naturel is the obvious choice, you know what I mean? It's the one that the movie sets you up. I mean, it's the one that the cops are pointing to, so obviously you can't trust that, because the fucking yeah. cops are telling it to you. Yeah. Um, audience, if you know anything about cops, they're always lying to you. Um, <laughs> Don't talk to cops. Yeah, so she, um, I, I I never really got thrown on that trail. I mean, the movie is is selling it to you the whole time, so it's either the obvious thing and there's going to be a big payoff, or or it's a distraction. Which... It would be way too like melodramatic, honestly. Yeah. And then it, it would undercut the actual like uh, Francis's scene when he accuses her of doing it, because that's kind of his point of no return in a way in the movie like that's the thing that he does that he can't really step back from he's ruined this connection with his yeah. friend you know yeah um yeah i never i never thought that i never thought that because i just i thought it i guess i thought it would just be really cheesy it would just be corny to do that in a weird way 
Yeah. And, and and the truth of the matter is that um, I think Natural is a smart enough girl to know that if she drops a dime on Monty, uh, they're not married. So she would have to testify against him. She would be an accomplice. They would Rico him out of the fucking apartment. They'd take all the money. She, you know, she would, if she turned on, if she was the one who turned on him, she would have, like, stashed the money somewhere or something. It, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't, that natural had no actual motivation to turn him in. Yeah. No, I agree with you 100%. And it's, and it's, I think, and it's in her, her character's nature. It's like she is kind of the perfect girl for everybody. Like, she's like the perfect girlfriend. She's yeah. like, She's like maternal and caring. Even her final moment with Monty is really like. It's really. It took me aback for a second. I gotta go. Wait one second. Wait, wait, wait. And she's just like, hold on, hold on. I'm just going to get you some ice in a fucking Ziploc bag for your face. Like, that's the last thing she does for him. Like, yeah. this caring moment. Because that's, that's all she can do at that, at that moment. You know? And, uh, and like I said like before, like, I think Rosario Dawson like, actually gives like, a very good performance. Like, it's a very, dare I say, natural performance. <laughs> oh, I did it, guys. I did it. I did it. Hey. Well, yeah, she's great. She's uh, she's like but uh, This is uh, one of her, her her better performances. I mean, even the scene when they're in the tub right before they get busted, and she's got the Puerto Rican flag. Yeah. She just got that new tattoo, and he's like, "Well, what should I get? An Irish flag on my ass? Like you've never even been there. You don't even." <laughs> right. It was great. She yeah. actually she she didn't go there until she went there on Monty's drug money. She. Maybe those DA guys were right. Those two are. Uh, they, I, I wish there was a spinoff movie. <laughs> yes, yeah, see that movie. Netflix series with just those dudes running around busting yeah. motherfuckers. What? You thought she was with you for your looks? Shit. Girl saw a pot of honey and she licked it clean. Yeah. She's a real smart girl. Now you, on the other hand, you're supposed to be smart. Got yourself a scholarship to a fancy private school, hmm? Not bad for a punk from Bay Ridge. Yeah, but then you go and get yourself thrown out for dealing weed to some rich kids. What up with that? You know what happens to pretty boys like you in prison? Ooh, they gonna love you. Yeah. <laughs> that would be great, actually. It would be awesome. Make uh, Clockers too. Have you ever seen Clockers? They could be the, they could be the Harvey Keitel, John Turturro team. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I uh, I took a, a remarkably few number of notes because, as I had told you, uh, the DVD got stuck and um, it like wouldn't play. So I mean, I've, I've seen the movie a million times, so I, but I only took notes through about half the movie. So well, I think we've actually we've covered most. Of it. It's it's it, for all of its nuance and in complexities, it is very straightforward. Like it is, it's it's kind of uncomplicated in a weird way. No, it is, and I think that that's one of the reasons why, as Spike Lee said, people sleep on the twenty fifth hour. 
yes. because it is not, uh, you know, it is remarkably simple. It, yeah. it tells a nice, simple story. It's a small movie. It's a very small movie. Yeah. And um, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean that and it tells, a, you know, it's yet another Spike Lee movie that tells a story within a tight 24 hours, and it delves into a, a, a razor focus on a few characters in this intense moment in their life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's... <laughs> You have to do a little bit of the thinking when you watch this movie. You have to put in a little bit of the horsepower yourself because yeah. otherwise it just kind of happens in front of you and you're like, oh, that was all right or whatever. And that's probably what I thought when I was a teenager when I saw it. You're just like, oh, that, you know, it was good. Good yeah. moving. Good performances. The subtext, you don't get any of yeah. uh, Brian Cox's, like, just the, his gut-wrenching performance. Every moment that he's on screen, he's so guilt in his eyes. He's so real. Yeah. Because because he's like such a guy, and that's what makes it like he's not like over dramatic. He's not weeping. He's actually acting like a real person. I hear pop. You don't trust my driver. I can't do it this way. He's gotta let me walk away, pop. Please, it's easier. Yeah. Easier? My God, you don't understand. Let me drive you there. I need to know where it is for visits, you know? Oh, okay, buddy. Help me out. Help me out? Okay. In the back. No hospital, Pop. No hospital. Let's go. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that is what a dad would actually be like. <laughs> You know, part <laughs> where they're having that conversation over the stakes, and he's just you know he starts blaming himself. I mean, if I, a kid who with a with a drunk for a father and a dead mother, and he's just like beating himself up, and then Monty goes away and he takes the hit off the beer like this. He's <laughs> like hiding it from everybody as he yeah. takes the swing of beer. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and just the desperation in the final scene as he goes deeper and deeper into that fantasy. Yeah. And it gets keeps getting more and more unrealistic. Yeah, and it's just like you, everybody. Hell, oh, is that is that what really happened? Is that the actual story? It's like, dude, do no. you think that it fucking played out that way in fucking reality? <laughs> well, no. it's, it's like the same ending as Raising Arizona. Have you ever seen Raising Arizona? No. Oh, you've never seen Raising It with Nick Cage? I hate Nicolas Cage with a passion. Oh, come on now. You you're not even '90s Nicolas Cage like back uh, in the day. I'll give him The Rock. Well, The Rock rocks. Yeah. No pun intended. It really does. That movie's fucking... That's a banger. It's technically the last James Bond movie, but we won't go into that here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, propaganda. Uh, in, 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 interesting um, little factoid. Uh, you know who's originally going to be Montgomery? Who? Originally optioned this movie. Still a producer on the movie. Sean Toby, to Toby Maguire. He decided, Toby Maguire, he decided to do Spider-Man instead. Uh, well, good for which is, him. Which is which was the good, that was the right move. That was the right choice. Yeah, it definitely was. And then, Can you uh, imagine this with, like, baby face Toby Maguire who still looks like he's 12? No, I couldn't imagine it. It would have been, it would have been a train wreck. I'm sorry. Yeah, it would not have been good. No. There's something I really, I really like. I, Edward Norton seems like he could be a real prick. But actually, like, for some reason, there's something about him. I'm like, I really like you, Ed Norton. Yeah. 
And he does, and he's a, he's one of these guys. He's like, I'll do one for them. I do five for me because I'm gonna make a shit ton of money doing the Hulk, and then I'm gonna go do ten indie movies. Like that's how he works, and I I really respect that about him in a weird way. Yeah, uh, he is like a consummate artist. I mean, this could, the legends about Edward Norton go back to what is it? Uh, American History X, where he basically took the movie over from the director, and then squeezed the director out of the editing bay. Uh, when they were making that movie, so Edward Norton's actually the real director of American History X. <laughs> Just so you know. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know he couldn't play nice. He couldn't make himself a nice, cool hundred million dollars and just play nice and stand on a fucking green screen with uh, Robert Downey Jr. for ten well, movies. Yeah, actually, because he was a problem. That's why they replaced him. Because he was like, no, I want input on the script. He's like, this is, I, was, I want, I want to make this a good movie. And actually, there's a funny. He did. He was part of the roast of Bruce Willis. And uh, when he was up on the dais, he was just like, he's like, God forbid anybody try to make one of these like into an actual movie. I tried to be like you. I did a big action movie called The Incredible Hulk. You know what went wrong? I wanted a better script. <laughs> I thought maybe we should try to make one Marvel movie that was at least as good as the worst Chris Nolan movie. But what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's he's great. I've always really loved Edward Norton, and and I really respected when I read that he uh, he took like a lot of what he made from Red Dragon and actually put it into like he put his own money into this movie. Yeah, like that's a rare fucking. Even Spike Lee don't do that, dude. Spike Lee was on Kickstarter, like ten years ago, trying to make a movie. Spike Lee could have made that movie. He had two million dollars to make that movie, but he decided right. to go to Kickstarter. Right. Uh, what is it? He did a remake of a movie called uh, "The Sweet Blood of Jesus." It's like this uh, this African vampire movie from the seventies, and he remade it. Nobody's ever heard of it. It's part of one of his during his dark period, you know. No, no, it part. sounds like a total vanity project. It, it sounds like when uh, I, I lived in Boston and decided to do a, a whole album of like Kitty Wells covers, like note for note. I spent like three grand on it <laughs> because that's just where my mind was in my mid twenties. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I've heard some of it. It's good though. You did a yeah, good job. Not too bad. You did a good job. Um, not too bad, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, Twenty Fifth Hour has always been uh, since I since I watched it. It's always captured me. It's just being a great atmospheric movie in general with great performances. But as I've watched it throughout the years and gotten to know uh, the sort of underlying subtext of everything and the depth of everything, it uh, I start to love it more and more. And uh, these, these these watchings that I've done the last couple of weeks, uh, you know, as a father and a true adult, yeah. Uh, you well, and, really and we're actually we're actually uh, uh, we're actually the age of these guys. Yes. We're about we're about the same age they are in the movie. We're probably a little bit older. Uh, so, like having that road behind you is like kind of really monumental to really be able to engage with the story in any serious way. Yeah, actually, I was surprised. I believe they're like thirty-one or thirty-two because they say that when Monty gets out of jail, he's going to be like thirty-eight. 38 or something like that, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm going to be a 38-year-old used-up punk or something like that. And when he said that, I was like, hey, yo, hold on, hold on, motherfucker. I'm going to be 37 in December. What the fuck are you trying to say? Well, you're not going to have your teeth knocked out with a pipe so you can blow dudes all night. That's hopefully true. I mean, I've only got... 
We've only got about a year and a half, so hopefully that doesn't happen. Um, Still a lot of time for the universe to really come for me. Yeah, yeah exactly. But uh, that that took me that took me back because I had seen this movie when I was younger, and I always uh, thought of these characters as being older and more like travel and world worn than me. And then watching it in this one, I'm finally older than them. I'm like, oh, holy shit! Like, uh, I'm an old man. <laughs> I should start eating rice with a fork. I, <laughs> it's time. It's time. But yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's it's a movie that is all about character, atmosphere. I I really honestly, like I said it a few times uh, during this conversation, but I, I do think it is Spike Lee's maybe his finest directorial hour because it's yeah. so coherent. It's so coherent. Um, and, 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 and normally, you know, I like... I like. I've really grown to like Spike Lee's stuff because it is sloppy. Excuse me. I, I really like the messiness of his movies. I've, it's actually part of like the texture of a Spike Lee movie, to be a little messy, like you know. And this is so tight. It was. It kind of takes you. You kind of taken aback a little bit by it. And uh, and it's something that like now that I've rewatched it, like I really like. I w- It was like. I didn't. I didn't know if I was gonna like want to rewatch it again, like in preparation, because it's like oh, I watched it. I kind of had my ideas. I already had kind of because it's so. It is kind of simple, and then I started watching it, and then I was just fucking locked in, like immediately. I was like, and it really hit me like how great it was, you know. Because I haven't. I haven't been watching it for years, you know. This. I really. I came back to this, you know. And also, I think it also it helped because I've been watching Spike Lee movies since we did do the right thing. I've just been watching Spike Lee movies, and uh, to put it in his like his oeuvre, like his filmography, it really is like it's a shining little pearl. And even Spike Lee, like you said, he says it too. He's like, people sleep on the twenty fifth hour. The the only uh, parting words that I would have for somebody uh, if they're going to watch the twenty fifth hour, <coughs> there's a deleted scene where they talk about the concept of sway that I think should have been somehow left in the movie if they could have. You know, people think I was after the money. And I was, in a way. I mean, let's face it, money gets you nice things. I like Italian shoes and a fast car like anybody else, but I don't need them. It's not like I grew up poor. I wasn't chasing the money. I was chasing a feeling. What I hungered for was sway. Sway helps make you money. And money helps make you sway. But sway is not money. This is sway. Sway is walking into the import warehouse in Brooklyn. All the clothes from Europe straight off the boat, still wrapped in plastic. Gucci, Prada, YSL. You can pick out what you want because everybody knows your boyfriend and everyone owes him a favor. Sway is walking to the best five-star restaurant in the city without a reservation and being seated right away. Sway? <laughs> That's making a phone call in the morning and having courtside seats, Madison Square Garden, that evening. Lakers versus Knicks, Kobe and Shizak in the his house. Sway is entering a club through the staff entrance, so you can skip the line, the cover charge, and the metal detector. Sway is locking eyes with an undercover cop on the subway. You know what he is and he knows what you are and you wink at him. Because he drives a battered Buick and you drive a vintage muscle car and he cannot touch you. That, my friends, is sway. 
because it's such a brilliant little scene. It's only like fifty nine seconds long or something. Yeah. And uh, if you, I believe that that scene kind of completes the movie, even though it's not in the movie. So if you if you check it out, check out the deleted scenes. It's particularly the one where they all the different characters give their little take on the concept of sway. Yeah, which is if you you know for kids that's uh, nowadays we call it drip. Your drip, if you can believe that. We're just regressing into cavemen. But, I was just uh, Dan, I thought you were going to say swag, but that was like 15 years no, ago. No, I, I, Dan, I, I reflexively was going to say f- swag, but then I remembered the new thing is called the drip. Yeah, um, sometimes, God, God bless my nephew, uh, I'll see him post things on Instagram, but uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't quite understand the language. It's some kind of pigeon. It's some kind of like hip hop pigeon, and um, I'm just I'm, an old white man. I'm just, yeah. you know what? I'm just used to my Eurocentric language. Oh, I thought like now I don't even bother anymore. I don't bother trying to understand it. I guess maybe I do a little bit like uh, during nightcaps occasionally, just to like be confused in front of people. But uh, <laughs> I really, it's just like. It, I and, and, and the older you get, the less interest you have in it as well. You're just like, whatever, I don't care. Yeah. Like, like I don't care. <laughs> I don't even, you know, like ten years ago, I'd have been like, what does that mean? Oh, I gotta find the uh, do the etymology of that. Let's look back to see where that comes from. Now I'm just like, yeah. I don't care. Now I'm just like, is my is my seltzer water cold? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, getting older is kind of. Again, I put it in the fridge three hours ago. Getting old is kind of based. You just stop giving a fuck. You're just like, you guys are wrong. Sorry. Yeah, sig- sigma sigma male grind set. Get old as fuck and stop caring. <laughs> get get too creaky and tired to care. Yeah, exactly. Just give up. Just give up. <laughs> but in terms of engaging with culture, just give up. Dude, I saw like five minutes. I know this is like side tangent. I saw like five minutes of that Space Jam movie. I thought my brain was... I turned it off. Because my, my son wanted to watch. He saw we were going to put something else on the TV. And we have, we have HBO. And I was going to put on, like... He likes these cartoons about this cartoon pigeon. Not the same one that Dan was referencing. Uh, it's a, a pigeon that just learns basic life lessons. And, um, and he saw Space Jam. And he was like, oh, Dad, it's the thing. It's Space Like, oh, it's the guy. It's Bugs Bunny. I was like, okay, all right, all right, fine. We'll we'll put it on. Like five, ten minutes in, I was like, son, this is not somewhere we're gonna go. Like, <laughs> we're just not doing this. It's like a fucking corporate nightmare. It's a Warner Brothers nightmare. It makes the original Space Jam look like a good movie. And I watched ten minutes of it. Like it's a fucking nightmare, dude. They're just like it just references that kids don't... It's not even made for kids. It's made for people that grew up watching Space Jam and now right. that are like millennial film snob hipsters. That's what it, who it's made for. It's not made for kids at all. Like the, 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 the fucking... The droogs from, from A Clockwork Orange are in the background of this fucking movie. Like, it's not for kids. Like, it's not, that's not the audience. Fucking algorithm, dude. Literally, this is the closest I've seen to a movie actually made by an algorithm. Like, what is popular? What do people recognize? <laughs> Madness, dude. Madness. They're, they're, oh, I, don't know, I can't even get into it. It, it, was, it was so awful, I was just like, no. And he was fine with it, too. And I was like, that's why you're my son. 
because you're fine with this. We're just stopping. <laughs> We're just not going to do this. Let's watch <laughs> RoboCop, son. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, we did, actually. <laughs> we put on the 25th hour. <laughs> he loved it, Dan. He loved it. He loved it. He likes dogs, you know? He likes voluptuous women. He likes Russian mafia people beating each other to death in the back of a nightclub. Yeah, he's like, Daddy, Daddy, that's Halle Berry. I was like, no, that's just what the Russian guy said. No. Daddy, Daddy, why is that man being such a sex pest to that teenage girl? <laughs> he's like, well, son, sometimes things get out of hand. <laughs> sometimes you make choices that you can't come back from. That's the yeah. theme of this movie. And then I sat him down and I told him about 9-11. And I told him about foreign policy for 25 years leading up to it. Six-hour <laughs> conversation about Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> <laughs> it was I, I can see the like the video montage of the dissolves, like of me just like going like this and him sitting at a desk, and just like pointing at a chalkboard, and I draw like W M D question mark. Very dark thirty, but anyway, that's about what I have on uh, the twenty fifth hour. I'd recommend anybody watch it. I mean, it's one of my um, favorite crime movies. It's a movie that I go back to throughout the years and. Um, I always kind of gauge things when I watch them again with a critical eye for the zoo box goes to the movies and does it get better to me, does it get worse and this movie only got better uh, when yeah. I look at it with a critical eye and uh, I think that's the mark of the filmmaker and like I agree with you Sean, I really think this is Spike Lee at his absolute best. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Definitely go check out the 25th hour everybody, especially if you've never seen it, you're in for a real treat. Like it's a great character study, it's a great atmospheric melancholy kind of a crime noir sense to it uh i really loved it and i'm so happy thank you dan for for recommending it because i'm really happy that like it got brought back into my my purview because i kind of forgot about it just like most people you know it wasn't something i thought about and uh and now it's like it's really like jumped into like one of my all-time favorite movies uh but anyways thanks everybody for listening thank you dan i appreciate you coming by buddy yeah, we and, finally uh, under three hours. I know. Thank fucking God. My editing senses are like, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, but anyways, if you'd like to know more about Zoobox, you want to hear about Zoobox stuff, there's a bunch of links in the description, Facebook, Instagram, my Twitter, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, also, leave a comment. If you've ever seen 25th Hour, is this something that you revere? Something you hate? I'd like to hear a hater. I want to hear what a hater has to say about 25th Hour. And I'm just going to write one word. I'm just going to write wrong. Anyways, good night, everybody. Mm -hmm.